she said, like, speaking candidly, I, I think it's because they're not sure that you can speak at that this level of sophistication on this topic. She she continued the conversation and said, don't you enjoy those moments, though, where you can see that they're, like, eating their words, I think was her phrase. They said, no, I kind of wish the bar wasn't so low. 2019, interviewing Condoleezza Rice, when I challenged myself to do the whole conversation without notes. And it was the first time I had been as ambitious as to do that with a talent of that scale. Who are you? When you look in the mirror, what do you say? It's a big question. It sort of depends who's asking. Please welcome to the stage, Holly Ransom. Holly Ransom. Holly Ransom. Holly Ransom. Regarded as one of the top 100 most influential women in Australia. The youngest AFL club board member at this stage. Get this, she's delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama. Greatest person I've ever met. You speak beautifully. I'm never more in flow than when I'm doing it. It gives me the greatest joy to sit in conversation and try and simplify complex ideas and make meaning so that people can put them to work in their life to get benefit from them. You know you've got a big interview coming up. Just a blank canvas. Mm -hmm. What what do you do? It starts for me by just absorbing and being curious. So, you know, if they've written books, I'll read their books. I'll come up with territories I want to touch on and I'll never quite be sure what order the territories will go in. What you hope for is then, right before they say to you, you can ask me anything you want, which happened with both Obamas. Someone like Adam Grant, you mentioned, I've interviewed Adam a bunch of times. I love working with him. He has such a quick answer rate. What can I do in future interviews to improve upon around questioning, around context? It was very clear this wasn't a set of like generic questions that, no, and I I really appreciate it because a lot of people don't do that. It feels, as you know, like, right, very formulaic how, how conversation can go. So I appreciate that. Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hey, it's Andrew and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Holly Ransom is a globally recognised expert in disruption and leadership, named by the AFR as one of Australia's 100 most influential women. Holly's power-packed career spans across the corporate sector, non-profits, the public sector, and high-performance sport. Her leadership consulting firm, Emergent, works with companies including P&G, Microsoft, Virgin, Cisco, and KPMG. And she's a board director for Hudson and the Port Adelaide Football Club. Wizard, most of those are really good choices. Football team Holly will talk about that. I'm going to keep going. A proud champion for diversity and inclusion. Holly is chair of Pride Cup Australia and is devoted to challenging LGBTQI and discrimination within sporting clubs. She has interviewed some of the most influential leaders in the world. You're a rock star interviewing rock stars. It includes Barack Obama, Sir Richard Branson, Billie Jean King, Nobel Prize winner Muhammad Yunus. I looked last week on your Instagram, Adam Grant. You're interviewing him. 
You've even interviewed the humanoid robot, Sophia. Her book, The Leading Edge, I've got it here, Dream Big, Spark Change, and Become the Leader the World Needs You to Be is a Cracker. Holly loves to cook, dance, and sing, despite having a complete lack of talent in all three. You say that on your bio, not me. Holly Ransom, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. I was just thinking as I was listening to that intro, you have such a great voice for podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I got a head for radio? <laughs> No, you just have a really great voice, very deep and very commanding. Oh, thank you. I did have some voice lessons. I don't know whether you have had voice lessons. Oh, yeah, I'm in a all big the work you do. in that. Yeah. Absolutely. Because when I started speaking many, many years ago, Holly, I was just getting such a raspy, sore voice. And I worked with this wonderful woman. Gosh, you've sparked a memory. Lorraine Merritt from NIDA. And she said, Andrew, I can tell you come from Dubbo, Wagga Wagga, Glenniness and Yass, which is where I grew up. And she got me to say, <laughs> the rain in Spain falls mainly. And, and it was oh, enunciation. Yeah. Been there, done that. Done that, yeah. And I got the resonance. Anyway, I have an intellectual crush on you. And I said that to Lawrence <laughs> and Timothy. What a phrase. <laughs> Researching you, I've done two things. One, we got the opportunity to work together in the outside. So I spent five weeks watching, interacting, learning from you, presenting as part of your team. So I've seen you in action. And then when we dug into the research, the books, the podcast, it makes me tired. Oh, mate, that's, that's not what I want to hear. <laughs> Number one, who are you? Because if I look at your website, <laughs> you're many things. You're an entrepreneur. You're a philanthropist. I always get that wrong. You work in sport. You coach. You interview rock stars. You write books. Who are you? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? I was going to say, it's a, it's a big question. It sort of depends who's asking because I think what you've described there is in many ways, it's funny, I've been reading a book this week that talks about, it's a psychology book and by Dr. Richard Swartz that our, our common friend, no doubt, Phil Nosworthy put me onto. And it talks about the idea of moving away from the, the mono mind and thinking about ourselves as multi-part. And I, I guess I've always had that approach, the idea that, you know, there are lots of different parts to what I do, but it all kind of connects around the same through lines. It's all about connection, conversation and culture. And the, the realm that I play in in that regard is, is leadership. It's sparking those different conversations because I've, I've always believed until we can spark a different conversation, we can never go on the journey to finding a different answer. And I think we're suspended in a world right now that desperately needs new answers and it needs different people attempting to come up with those answers too and sparking those questions. That's part of the, the problem of the kind of uh, social infrastructure we're stuck in a little bit. And that desire to, to do that, work with people who are equally passionate and driven to get the best out of themselves and the best out of others, whether that's in a team context, a company context, or a community context. So that's in a nutshell kind of what, what has driven me and the work that I love to do. And that uh, absolutely you're right. I speak fluent sport. I absolutely love the world of sport, always have done, have always found it a fascinating microcosm. And I know this is a shared language and passion for us to look at so many aspects of life because the performance loop is so public and so rapid and it is it's a little microcosm of culture and leadership and performance and feedback and all these interesting dynamics that in many ways play out in all of our lives they just tend to play out in a more opaque way and so there's so much i think that we can learn and pull in and i know that's a lot of your work as well from a physiology standpoint hey it's me just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. 
now let's get on to this week's guest. Physiology, psychology, all the ologies as well, sociology, you do learn so much from sport. And we've seen this when the athlete gets on stage and he or she says, yeah. you know, I, I kick the ball between the big post and that's how we won the grand final. And that's how you apply that to leadership. There are definite lessons you transfer across. The biggest thing that I find different in sport is it's it's the yeah. immediacy and the quickness. So in NRL, so we know with Manly, we have 24 rounds over a 27-week period. Each week you get the mm-hmm. scoreboard and you win or you lose. It's cutthroat. You get two points or you don't and then you get ready the next week. Same with AFL. And then you go like, what do we need to do this week? Who's in? Who's out? Let's go the next one. And you do that for six months of the year. The big difference though, I find in sport, is you've got that immediate feedback, not an annual mm-hmm. review. And the other big difference yep. in sport, you've got to be so much more agile. So whenever anyone says, what's the difference between elite sport and a corporate you work with? It's the agility that the athletes, mm-hmm. the coaches, the men and women have. Because if you don't move quick, you know this, you can go from top of the ladder. And and I had a bit of a dig at you at the start. You guys are doing very well this year. Yeah, very happy. You can drop down. And that's the difference between being in the eight and having a run for the finals or packing your bags up and having a much bigger off season. Totally. And I think I totally agree with that. And it's one of the reasons I've always resonated with that all blacks principle around going for the gap and that idea that, you know, when you're on top, it's that time to challenge yourself to change. And what's the question I'm not asking? And, you know, particularly in teams that we've seen sustained success, whether we're talking about New England Patriots under Belichick, we're talking about the all blacks are the most winning team of all time, you know, AFL premiers that have managed to string together multiple premierships within a window, that type of stuff. I think there is this piece around principles that are allowed to sustain. The other thing I was going to add in to what you were talking about, and it's funny, I'm, I'm in this world a lot this year because I've been doing the leadership and culture work with our, our men's program at Port Adelaide in, in addition to my role on the board, is there's something about, and this gets to a topic I know we're going to touch on, around energy management. Uh, I remember many, many years ago interviewing Stephen Moore, the Wallabies captain at the time, I believe, when we did the interview. And he talked about this idea that one of the things he found fascinating and what didn't translate between athlete world and corporate world being that people didn't think about nutrition. Nobody cared about sleep. No one was thinking actively about how do I show up and make sure I can perform. And I also think that speaks to- And recovery. To, I'll just add that in as well because in, totally. in elite sport now, it's train hard, recover even harder. Corporate yep. world, I, I say this regularly, you've probably heard me say this. Little Pierre de Coubertin, the Frenchman who carved out the Olympic motto back in 1894, Citius, Altius, Fortius, faster, higher, stronger. Now, they've added community, interesting, in 2021 Mm. when we pushed the Olympics back a year, but they've missed the Latin word recupatio, which means recover and bounce back. Faster, higher, stronger. And that's a huge thing that we both see. One of the reasons we have burnout is it's just lack of recovery. Now, I know there's other conditions company overload and everything but that missing piece as you say that that foundation principles that elite athletes just go this is what i've done for 15 years how come you don't do this in the elite corporate world huge gap pulling on the same idea it's partly because you know in a sporting context to your point earlier there's a game every weekend two four points however many points are on the line and there's a clarity of goal focus and what outcome looks like and i think there's an absence of that so often in the rest of our lives so there's this sense that you know I've always believed things fill to expand to fill the space they're allowed or, you know, fill the space that they're given. And so performance becomes this thing that all of a sudden this age is 24-7 hours of the day. I'm on, you know, when my boss texts me at 5 a.m., I've got a project that I've got to overnight to the team in the U.S., so we're up at that hour. And so there's this creep that means 
how do we actually be disciplined enough to carve out what we need to do to stay with a full tank and be able to give the best of ourselves to everything we're doing? I think that's something that hasn't translated over in the way that it does in the rhythm of a sporting week. You know, there are recovery days. There are days where we're in the gym and doing the work and not pounding the track. I remember learning about this in triathlon, like when I was doing Ironmans, as you edge closer to the main event, there was this tapering piece. You're not trying to train at that level right as you get close to the actual performance itself or you'll be gassed. So it was, it was interesting learning and I thought, oh gosh, there's so much of this that doesn't apply in the rest of my life. I need to take some of these lessons over. I've got two questions. One's an open loop I need to close and a question to build on what you just said, the open loop. Do you remember the TV show on Channel 7 called Thank God You're Here? Yeah, I love that show. Yeah, yeah. Holly Ransom comes in. The host was Shane Bourne. Holly, thank God you're here. And you're suddenly put into a situation. You're a baker. You're flying a plane. You're the coach of the best AFL team, the Sydney Swans. See what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> I did see <laughs> And then you've literally right. got five seconds to work out context-specific information. It's normally comedians because they're amazing at thinking on their feet. so good. And it's a wonderful show. Do you ever have that moment like Holly and you go thank god I'm here shit what am I am I a baker am I coach of the Sydney Swans <laughs> or have you learned to transition into those moments and be fully present or like basically what I'm asking are you normal like do you <laughs> do you, do <laughs> you have mistakes mean? Holly do you ever oh my god, think you're time. not good Absolutely. enough do you yes yeah. okay tell me yeah, tell me an example course. when you have walked into something recently and you went oh my god thank god I'm here it's funny the thank God you're here piece. I was trying to work out because those two are a little bit in tension. There are some situations where you feel like, oh, right, this is absolutely my wheelhouse, which is a little bit more of the thank God I'm here moment and I can see, you know, how I'm going to be able to have impact. My tension is always, and this is something I learned when I did my year suspended in fear, so 365 days of doing stuff I was afraid of, which is probably still to this day like the, the biggest thing I've done from a personal growth standpoint, is that tension between sitting in your wheelhouse and stepping outside of it. And so routinely I'm finding ways to push into context and take my learning, the things that I'm really confident in, in how to do. I and mean, there's a lot of stuff, whether it's facilitation, whether it's working on certain content areas that I'm 10, 15 years comfortable with, but then I change context and that flips it all to your point. And so all of a sudden you're working with 60 footballers or all of a sudden you're working with Fortune 100 leaders in a Chatham, Chatham House forum where you're given the role of being the provocateur and the challenger of that level executive. Like, you know, they, they are things where naturally and appropriately your heart rates up, you know what I mean? It's thinking about, okay, how am I going to adapt and think about this context and my role in it and what this audience needs? And I think that's where I always come back to Covey's principle. You know, my goal to your point around that kind of first five seconds in, in a non-thank God you're here context, but he's always around seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. You know, it's to understand where am I meeting this culture, uh, conversation, whatever the context might be, what's my role to play here, how can I add value, and then to go away and think about, okay, from a design element, from a deployment of skills standpoint, what can I do? But absolutely, you, you make mistakes there. And I think that's where for me, you know, two sides, one is something sport does well how do you have open feedback loops so how do you seek to engage people you know early in the process you're trying to get as close to the bullseye as you can with the final piece and delivery but then you're also getting that feedback at the end and you're tweaking and changing accordingly and secondly kind of who are your 
support structures, you know, that can help you. A lot of the work we do, the, the feedback loop is very public and very critical too. Like you get scores out of five for how well you're presented. You get very direct feedback on, you know, what people thought of different content. You know, there's a reality around needing to make sure you're supported when you're going to step out into territory that's uncomfortable. And so I think those two things are really critical and really important. But regularly, I would I would be disappointed in myself if I didn't routinely feel uncomfortable about the way I was working. Because for me, that tells me I'm growing. When you read feedback after a presentation, do you focus more on the people that said, don't like this, shouldn't wear that, sounded like this? Or do you double down on the feedback where people are supporting what you're doing, the growth you've been undertaking, the messages you're trying to land? It's funny. Like I think human psychology says we always focus more on the negative. And so I do think there's a way that negatives jar with you that you have to rebalance and you have to remind yourself, you know, you would know the most recent data. I've read studies that say anywhere from five to 20 positives to counteract a negative. So there's this need to make sure when you come out of those feedback cycles you do reset yourself because sometimes they can be really brutal and and cut out the haters you could, like there are sometimes and oh, always as, as you know we both speak a lot I used to focus on they don't like my jokes I, I got told two weeks ago that it was quite it was from a lady got really mm. shit jokes <laughs> go really yeah 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 uh, oh, that's pointed. and then she, she actually put a uh details down. I don't know whether, and I haven't followed up, really shit jokes. Um, I'm a comedian. <laughs> Give me a yell. I'll help you out. So I actually don't know whether she wanted my number or whether I had shit jokes. So I don't. I, so I, I probably should follow up. Yeah, I had a client overnight who was like, just could not stand one particular analogy that I'd used. And that was like, they hated that story. Like, I was like, okay, great. Like, you know, I don't know how useful that bit of feedback is, but, but appreciate it and grateful for it. And so I think you're right. You've got to, you've got to kind of siphon out the wheat from the chaff in, in that regard. I think the other thing too, for me, and it's one of the reasons that I feel very grateful when I work with the industry itself or when I work alongside colleagues who do a lot of this too, the most valuable feedback is the specific stuff. It's less about, were well, you great? Did you like me? Whatever. It was more about, hey, I really love the way you told that. Or I thought you could have done, you could have paused more here to allow me to, to reflect and comprehend it. Like for me, the people who have the ability to provide more nuanced feedback than just thumbs up or thumbs down, that's where I want to sit and spend time with because that's where I'm going to get the the nuggets that can allow me to do better next time. When I look at what you do from a modality, so the message that runs through you, Sid, is, is, is really clear and connected. I get that. But if it's keynote speaking, facilitating, coaching, mentoring, podcasting, interviewing, doing media. What's your sweet spot? When you started all this, what was your biggest strength or what did you find easiest? For for me, the area I started in was keynote speaking. So I find Mm -hmm. that even as the stages get bigger, it's good nerves, but I feel comfortable in that where there's other areas like podcasting. Mm -hmm. I've really had to learn a different way because when you come from a stage when you speak at which is what you do for keynote to entertain i've had to do a lot of learning so what's your sweet spot and then i've got another question for you uh i would say the sweet spot and, and it can come in different forms so it would be moderating or interviewing so facilitating and or interviewing there's something about me and i know we're nutbags enough being the very rare percentage of the population who even like being on stage and doing the talking which tends to be an even bigger fear for most people than death itself, which is interesting as a reflection on just the the fear public speaking holds on us. So we're nuts enough as is, but then I love when there's no safety net. So I love 
when I have no idea where people are going to go or I have no idea what the crowd are going to give back. There's something electric for me about live. And it t- tends to be, for those who've, who've seen me speak, I, I tend to be a relatively interactive speaker anyway because I, I just like bringing that flavour in and I think people respond differently to ideas when they are given the opportunity to try them on. But I would say that end of the spectrum is the most interesting for me because you've got to be so on. It feels like you're really, for me, it feels like the greatest level of mental gymnastics and test of like how how well do I know my craft, how good am I at my skill, all that sort of thing. So it's probably why I gravitate there in that answer. And also watching you in your career development, doing all those different activities. So the podcast that you do when you interview as well, the interviewing you do, the keynote speaking, the coaching, the facilitation, all the other work you do, the the writing also, it's like cross-training. It it gives you more skills. Collectively, you get this amalgamation of skills and I've seen you do it I've seen you facilitate and you go into keynote mode and I've seen you keynote and you facilitate it's lots and lots of hours of work to do that but it's also interesting what you say there you know multidisciplinary training cross training I, I think it's one of the most beneficial things and for me it, I, I've always wondered I don't know whether it's just part of how my brain works like I'm a kinesthetic learner I like to do when I find my brain naturally looks for connections between things and so I, I find there's my greatest growth has often come from what I would call like tangential learning. Like I'll go to your point, like shout out to my vocal teacher, Anna, and I'll do, you know, classes with the wonderful Anna McCrossan and I'll, I'll take things directly into craft, even though some of those vocal lessons can seem quite removed from elements of what I'm doing there. Or I'll go and do acting and singing lessons or I'll try improv or stand up or I'll play with these sorts of things with no intention of ever. Have you done stand up? Yes. Yes. And it, freaking bombed like it was terrible um, and terrifying might I add I'm just not built for that style of delivery I have such respect for comedians and talk about a quick feedback loop like when you're turning out that joke rate per minute uh, and getting that level of immediate and and everyone knowing whether whether it's working or not it's an incredible craft did you have to do at the end of your course to stand up and actually do it I didn't do it that structured. You sound like you actually did a, a course. That probably would have been a smart move. I just threw myself up to an open mic night. I enrolled and went to two nights and it was a four-week program, four nights. And then at Star here, Star Casino, they were going to have an improv yeah. night where you got up on the mic. And after two nights, I, I had a booking the following week, which I could have moved, but I took it and said, I'm too busy. I bailed out yeah. of it. I was so uncomfortable. And I don't blame you. It's so scary and uncomfortable. I really, I get it. My mates from Davo have Googled. We, we, we catch up. I totally digress, but it's linked to the story. Mario, Ego, Dino and Lapo, my best mates from school at Dubbo. You can't write this stuff. We get together once a year for a offsite, husband offsite. We're on a houseboat on the Gold Coast a month ago. <laughs> and Dino said, hey, Andy, when are you doing your stand-up? Because I said, look, I will do it. They had actually, they knew the night because I told Mario and then they got online. They were going to go. So my best mates were going to be in the audience. So when I do it next time, I'm not telling those assholes. I was so uncomfortable. No. How would you have found that to be more uncomfortable if you'd walked out and seen them without a venous source of support or a source of like, oh my gosh, my anxiety just went up four times. I'm headbutting the microphone. This is the ladder based on that reaction. It would have been awful. It would have been so much sledging yep. and I just would have been conscious more of them. <laughs> it's a funny thing, isn't it? The way we show up for the people we love. <laughs> yeah. And, and they know me since I was a 14 or 15 year old, skinny Steve Monaghetti. Mario said it at my wedding. 
He said, Andy's like the love child of Steve Modigetti and John Bon Jovi. I had really big hair and I was really skinny. <laughs> so you can't take that stuff away, right? But I will make a pact no. with you to do an improv mm-hmm. comedy if you do the same and we've got to deliver at the end. Yeah, let's do it. Done. Okay. Yeah, let's find a course and go do it together. Nothing like public accountability. <laughs> no, nothing. Keeping on that, that thread, and we'll jump around a bit. Yep. When I see you interview the people you interview and, and those names I mentioned, talk to me. You know you've got a big interview coming up. Just a blank hand. That's, mm-hmm. what, what do you do? What does it look like? Uh, so it starts for me by just absorbing and being curious. So, you know, if they've written books, I'll read their books. If, uh, they've been, if they've delivered any really prominent or high profile talks, I'll watch for that. And I'll make notes as I go of things that spark my curiosity. So I'll end up with this list. It might be a quote, it might be an achievement, it might be something that surprised me, whatever it might be. And I'll sort of accumulate that. And then oftentimes, as you know, all too well, you know, these conversations are happening in in a context. So they're for an audience or for a program or part of something like that. And so there's always this piece of understanding my audience as I do that inquiry and then thinking about how those two things marry. So what are the things that this audience need to take away? Where might this conversation be meeting them? Um, What are they going to be interested in? Uh, What are some things that would maybe practically help them apply some of the ideas that might be talked about, those sorts of things? And then that will weave into, like, I always kind of draft, I often call them like territories. Like I'll come up with territories I want to touch on and I'll never quite be sure what order the territories will go in. Um, And I certainly make a plan, you know, quite often with interviews of that scale, you have a degree of sign-off that happens beforehand. So there's very clear areas that um, are approved uh, that can or can't be talked about. Do you ever go close to the edges? Well, what, what you hope for is then right before they say to you, you can ask me anything you want, which happened with both Obamas uh, actually. And so that means two minutes before you're about to start, you've now been given permission to throw the script out. And so that's what you want, but you also need to plan for, if you get told you've got someone like that, no script for 60, 60 minutes, how you're actually going to use it the way you want to use it. So sometimes you also have like different versions and different versions for how someone shows up. You know, if you've got someone who um, answers in really long answers, typically you've got to be mindful of, okay, I'm ruthlessly prioritizing. If I get four questions out here, what are they going to be? Um, someone like Adam Grant, you mentioned, I've interviewed Adam a bunch of times. I love working with him. He has such a quick answer rate. Like he's got a real economy of words. He's so clear in his thinking and his articulation you can get through 15 to 20 topics without them in the time you'd get through five with someone else. And so being ready for that, he's unbelievable. And he's just delightful too. And speaking of feedback, like immediately after interviewing him, I'll have an email from him giving me a score out of 10 and what I could do to do better. And he'll be asking me for what's the score I'd give him out of 10 and what would I advise him to do better? And I love that relationship. I think that's a really special piece to have that sort of dynamic where he cares enough to continue to put the work in to improve. Did you ask for that? Because I know he does that with his students and he said the first time it happened, it was brutal when he got the feedback from students. But the last seven years in a row, he's been nominated or voted as the best lecturer in his university. Best professor. Yeah, absolutely. So you interviewed him recently. Can you disclose what some of the feedback he gave you? So it's been good because this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've interviewed him. And so what I can... What was actually really cool was that he said to me, a feedback piece he'd given me the time before was that riff with me more. Like, you know this stuff really well. Don't feel the need to just be the interviewer here. Like, I want you to piggyback and, you know, when you've got stuff you want to add in or challenge or another example, like, join in with me. 
And so I took up that invitation a couple of times in the most recent interview and he's like, I love that. Like that was really fun, new dynamic that we haven't had yet. Like do more of that. Uh, so, you know, getting stuff like that is, is really useful. And, and people have different styles too. So it's it also oftentimes you don't get the privilege of meeting these people until you're actually doing the interview or shortly there before. And so part of it is also about how quickly can you build rapport and then how quickly can you work out what level of trust have I got here? How's this person going to respond or not respond to a particular line of questioning? Because I remember quite vividly when I interviewed President Obama, he'd just been in India before he came to Australia and an Indian journalist had asked a question that was on the don't ask list. And, and the don't ask list for him was really just don't ask about the current administration because like predecessors before him, his view was when you leave the office, you don't come in and take pot shots at the person who's after you. You kind of leave them to do their thing and that's appropriate. And so this journalist had gone there and I just never understand the point of that because all that does is shut down your interview subject. You get absolutely bagel out of them for the rest of the conversation. So to your point around finding a line, that's that delicate dance of like how much trust have we got? How can we build it together over the length of the conversation so we get licensed to go deeper? And then respecting boundaries if I feel like they're coming out at different points too and knowing, okay, that, that's walled off. Let's go in another direction. I have so many questions. Let's go to Adam Grant. That first bit of feedback he gave you about riffing then gave you permission. You riff last time. He gave you the feedback that worked really mm-hmm. well. Did he give you anything else to work on? Is it a constant evolution with someone like him or is he, hey, girl, you've got this now. Well done. Or was there something yeah, else? Yeah, I, so it's funny because I realised this week that I hadn't given him his feedback. So I've just emailed him this morning to, to give him his feedback. And so I asked him, because he'd said nine out of 10 for that conversation and he'd really enjoyed it and all that sort of thing. And he hadn't given me notes like he typically does, but that was also in the fleeting moment before he got mobbed by VIPs and all that sort of stuff in the green room afterwards. So I, I'm awaiting those notes and I certainly hope, and he's pretty good. That's what I mean about nuanced feedback. He will be quite specific uh, about what it is that I could have done better. And, and that's the feedback that you want. Like, it's not useful to me to say that was great. It's like, yes, but there's always areas to improve. What wasn't great or what could have been better or could I have made you more comfortable or, you know, a- anything like that. But I'm definitely, I can see, you know, fourth interview that we've done together now, dramatically better than first. So it's been cool to watch the evolution of, of seeing how much more you can get out of someone when you really understand how to work collaboratively with them. Were they filmed and recorded, those interviews, so you can go back and watch each of them? Mm-hmm. Mm. You say, I never stick to the structure, prescript because I don't think they make interesting conversations. I'm happy to agree to themes, but I would never have a list of questions, which I will then follow verbatim. The most important thing I do is being an active listener and then responding to whatever the person has offered me up and taking that in a direction that I think is helpful and useful for my audience. Yeah, that says it all. (laughs) What did you do with Obama's, plural, to build that Mm -hmm. rapport? Because I imagine you don't go on a bushwalk and you know, go down the rapids and have lunch together and you know, text friends, you probably get a few minutes before you go on. What did you do to create that mm-hmm. rapport? Well, I think there's two things. One is often the way that people's managers are and the way that they protect the people they manage is sometimes very different to the way the individual shows up themselves. And, and so it's understanding that you know, they can be different things to begin with. Uh, and so in the briefing, you're always with someone who represents these individuals 
understandably and, and rightly and kind of as a general rule of thumb, they kind of set the rules of the road down. And, and I think part of that is is also a little bit of like an early hurdle to jump to. Like, can you respond to that brief? Can you set questions at the level we hope you can set questions to? I mean, certainly I've faced a number of times over my career, whether it's been vocalised directly to me or fed back indirectly, presumptions around she's a young woman, can she really, you know, speak at this level, hold this audience, ask questions of that sort of person, et cetera. I think I'm getting to a point now where some of that's diminishing. Uh, that was certainly present for the the, the, the early part of, of the work uh, history that, I, that I've accumulated. And so there, there's sometimes I think part of it is proving that, Oh, that would, know, I was just going to interject. I, I that find... would fire you up. Holy ransom. If someone says to you, uh, is she mature enough, experienced enough, uh, older, like, just screw that. I know that would just be an absolute red rag to a bull for you. Screw you. I'm going to do this. And- yeah. I vividly remember one conversation with an agent. I won't name the client, but it was um, it was in the the kind of financial industry, and it was a, a big event for them. and And I remember her saying, "You know, they want a a, a briefing call before they book you." which was at the time unusual. I do a bit more of them now because you just find, you know, you're trying to work out whether you fit with the client tonally and that sort of stuff. And so that's a bit more common. But at the time that was unusual. And I said, can I ask why? I said, oh, she said, like speaking candidly, I think it's because they're not sure that you can speak at that this level of sophistication on this topic. And anyway, she, she continued the conversation and said, don't you enjoy those moments though where you can see that they're like eating their words, I think was her phrase. I said, no, I kind of wish the bar wasn't so low. Like, why is that the presumption that we would approach a young woman with or a young person or whatever lens it was that was leading to that set of assumptions and stereotypes and what have you? I think it sort of disappoints me that that's where the bar begins. And the idea, it just speaks to, I think, something that's been ingrained in me from from my grandmother particularly, that notion that everyone has value and you can learn from everyone has just always been, like, it's always for me, on you as the listener to find what's in this for me. I can find everybody interesting because there is interesting about, there's something interesting about everyone. And so that idea that, you know, that's where the bar starts or, you know, and we see it, we see it in how skewed, how lacking in cultural diversity or gender diversity or all sorts of things, different lineups are by virtue of perceptions of experience or capability or whatever it is that's being projected onto some people in a way that others aren't held to the same standard. So it is interesting in that respect. A quick break in the program to let you know about the Performance Intelligence Masterclass. You see, every week we receive a number of requests from people listening to the podcast or attending one of my keynote presentations wanting to know more about personal performance coaching. Due to the demands on my time running strivestronger.com, delivering mental skills training for athletes and sporting teams, my speaking practice, and also having four kids, I only allocate a set amount of time each week, about half a day, towards coaching. And this is primarily targeted at senior executives and entrepreneurs and founders. The starting price for my coaching programs is $15,000, which I realize is a lot of money and it's prohibitive for many people. So, based on the success of a 12-month coaching program we've been delivering for a number of corporate clients, we are launching a public version of Performance Intelligence Masterclass. It's open to the public and it's open to people like you. 
So if you would like to boost your psychological fitness and resilience, enhance physical well-being and energy, if you want to live longer, if you want to increase productivity, if you want to enhance cognitive capacity and decision-making, and if you want to do this with a support group of like-minded people, oh, and if you also want to make more money, Performance Intelligence Masterclass has been designed for you. How does it work? Well, the format is we pick a theme for each quarter, like being match fit or boosting productivity or accelerating mental skills, enhancing leadership, etc. There's a half-day group workshop. Then we have six weeks of check-ins where you're made accountable each week just by asking five or six key questions. And then we wrap that up with a 60 to 90 minute workshop, six weeks after the half-day workshop. And then for the rest of the quarter, you put this into practice. To find out more, go to andrewmay.com slash performance intelligence masterclass. What would be interesting as well is to hear about your worst interview and your best interview. Which one do you want to go first? Have you got have you got one where you go, oh, so I think a presentation I did at Filex, which is the fitness conference. I was in Hobart. I would have been 26, flew up. It was uh, 250 people in the room. I thought I had to impress everyone mm-hmm. with my knowledge. At the end of that lecture, more than half the room had left. I was awful. I, I feel... I actually feel a little bit physiologically nauseous, anxious when I talk about it. That was a, a pivotal moment for me, Holly, where I said, I've got to go and learn how to present and get out of the content and look at presentation. And then it was Lorraine Merritt and a whole bunch of other people. So I, I, I go there. You can see my I, I shrink when I talk about that. But that was such a powerful experience for me. What was yours? When you look mm-hmm. back, what was it? presentation you bombed or you just went oh god oh it's funny there are ones for different reasons like there are moments where I feel like I didn't build the rapport with someone I was interviewing and so I got a really locked up interview that was a lot of short answers and didn't deliver for my audience and or I missed the opportunity to make it more interesting or something like that so I I can count moments in conversations I, I feel quite lucky I don't feel I can say I've had a total train wreck of an interview but I've definitely had moments of fail many times over in different interviews where I've, where I've learned. And they're some of the ones I come back to all the time where I went, you know, oh, that was a miss or actually I lost my trail of thought there and I wish I'd gone here or, you know, I, I critically review quite harshly after I do interviews in particular. Give me something, great. Yeah. Can you pull out? You might want to change No, I'm trying to name. think of something. No, I'm, I'm trying to be more specific than that, but it's funny, they probably blur more into general insights than they do recall in specific conversations for me in that regard. I can certainly remember there's a handful of presentations. For me, it's less they make me sick. I get really angry when I feel like I've wasted a platform. And so the one that I still feel angry about is seven, eight years ago, I had the opportunity to speak at an AFL event, which was basically their women's luncheon. And it was a a keynote presentation and I'm still furious at myself for how much I feel I wasted the opportunity of a thousand stakeholders or however many it was in that room in that industry that day. I just feel like I missed the mark. Sometimes those events are a tough brief and so you can almost be your undoing by the fact you overthink how to deliver a message and connect and whatever. Oftentimes that, that style of event are the ones where I find you know, you're not really playing the role like we often are of teaching and interacting in those moments. You're like 15 minutes up in front of a whole bunch of people that just want to kind of get back to drinking and socialising. 
And so working out how to play your role in that and the right tone and message to hit, I, I lost myself in that brief. And I don't think I was coherent. I don't think I was powerful. I don't think any of that delivered in the way that I would have wished. And I wished many times over I could have that one back. So that's one that still visibly hurts when I recall it. Ladies and gentlemen, she's normal. And, and, and that took a bit of teasing. Thank you, because I, I agitated on that. I didn't just let you off with the random oh, one. Oh, keynoting's easier. I think I started in interviewing, which I do find easy to be specific about, because part of it's about the dance and I don't recall particular moments, but keynoting, I mean, I can take you to that one immediately. Yeah. The keynoting one? Was in that AFL one. Yeah. Like when I think, if I think about both sides of my work, like that one's a bit harder if we go to keynoting. Gotcha, because you've been doing interviewing one. for so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've got to finish on a bright note, right? Tell me the a presentation where you reflect on and just go, you wouldn't be the type of person that goes, oh, you legend, you rocked the house, like you were mm-hmm. awesome. But you, you know you you know when you've landed a presentation. What's one when you think back, you just feel the warmth and the buzz and the connection? Again, I probably want to go to an interview first and it would be 2019 interviewing Condoleezza Rice when I challenged myself to do the whole conversation without notes. And it was the first time I had been as ambitious as to do that with a talent of that scale in front of an audience of, I think that was six or 7,000 people. It was a US event. And so it felt like really being on the tightrope. Like this, I, I feel, you know that, I don't know if you've ever done slacklining, but when that, it's under your foot and it's just, it's, it's shaking and every little micro movement feels like it's going to throw you off. That felt like probably one of the times I was most on the wire in anything I've done. And she, I mean, I, I, I should also contextualize. I admire her enormously. I wrote my year 10 book report on her. I've read about her for years. So it was very, it was very much meeting an idol moment in a lot of ways as well. And then I was trying to do something so outside of my comfort zone that I absolutely could have fallen flat on and how well that conversation went and the insights that were offered and how well it flowed and my ability to recall kind of the territories I wanted to cover over the 45 minutes or whatever we had, that for me was probably the one where I think that was really the height of my craft, doing that so well with someone of that calibre. So that, that's probably the one I go back to immediately. I had goosebumps, but as you said that, I could feel that. You shifted then. I could see you go back into that yeah. moment. and. My goodness, six or 7,000 people, Condoleezza Rice, no notes. Oh, you obviously did loads and loads of prep. Did you do that, throw the notes away to be fully present and to just listen and run with her? What was the rationale? Yeah, a little bit that. And I think it's a bit like how, for me, in some ways, the progression often of speaking, like for those who have done any kind of speaking, you know, if you're building into it, often you start you might start reading a speech and then you move to maybe turning it into bullet points or you got little flashcards and then you move to, you know, like the goal is to move away from having to rely on the safety net in, in part because I think it, it does, it puts you more fully in the moment and all of that regard. So I think part of it was the challenge of sort of can I do this and, and can it be done this way live and, you know, it's different when you watch people do late night and stuff because they've got teleprompters and they've got places they hide their notes and it's, it's easy in that regard to some degree because you are being given a fair amount of guideposts to help you cover the time and territory you've got. I think there was a question for me around, is this something I can do and is this something that not having seen people do that before, that it can actually be done in this format at this level. 
And so it was a little bit of a very live, very high risk experiment. And fortunately it, it stuck, but I think it did. It, I mean, the risk you have to go back to your point around being present is that if you move and you, you and I talk about these sorts of ideas around difference between moving from your comfort zone into courage zone versus panic zone. If I'd done that earlier in my career, I think I would have risked that being panic zone territory. And what that would have done was actually moved me out of being present because I would have been so preoccupied with shit. Don't forget the next question or, oh my God, no, make sure I remember this. And so I think there was a piece around probably part of why I'm proud of it is because actually that represented, it's like an iceberg moment that represented me having worked for a really long time to build confidence and skill and comfort and familiarity with how I work in order that I could push into that moment and not over rev because I think I otherwise that could have been a panic zone moment and, and then all presence would have been lost. I was going to ask you, well, stand up. I'll show you what I was going to do, but you've done it. Stand up for me, please, Holly. Stand up. I was no, going I'm going to gonna move out of the screen if I do that. <laughs> it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll get <laughs> a physiological okay? shift. All right. uh, I was going to get you to step back and reflect on that lag time catching up with what you did, but you've already done it. I just wanted to get you to stand up, change state, and we'll go to something <laughs> else. But you, you, you've built that like in, it. obviously. You've built in a natural reflection. You, interviewing you, talking to you, it's a mastercraft. This is so ingrained in the way you work. It's the preparation. It's the engagement. You listen, but then you reflect what worked, what didn't, what can I improve next time? I can even see you doing that on the spot. Do you know you do that? Like in that, if we, you, you know what <laughs> I'm getting at. to that degree. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm yeah, rewinding. Yeah. I'm trying to get all meta on our conversation and catch up with it, which is why I needed to stand. <laughs> I needed to stand back, Holly, just to change my state to go, what is she doing to me here? You've done this so much, <laughs> it's probably become an automated state. But I, the point being, Not I want to know whether you do really reflect, and you do. I could see that you're proud of that moment. You, you have lag time, coaching psychology, to catch up with where you are. So important to our listeners that you do take time to pause and reflect. And we had the juxtaposition. You've done it on the one eight or nine years ago, but you've done it as much, mm -hmm. probably more, with Condoleezza Rice. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that's something you know there there's notes of being in a presentation earlier today i'm looking forward to getting the feedback there are parts already i think i'm interested and you kind of hold your own judgment of how you go till you get that you know you try and triangulate like what did they think how did i feel you know somewhere in the middle there's the truth of sort of how that went and what i could do differently next time so i'm holding and waiting to see what they said and and then think about what i'd carry forward but i feel like it's this ever accumulating list of things in part because my goal is mastery. Like I have always wanted to be a master of this craft because I love it. I'm never more in flow than when I'm doing it. It gives me the greatest joy to sit in conversation and try and simplify complex ideas and make meaning so that people can put them to work in their life to get benefit from them. And so for me, if mastery is your goal, then, then you're constantly having to reflect because it's the only way tomorrow is going to be better than today. And it's the only way you're going to itch that little bit closer towards, you know, getting to the, the height of what your craft can be. Virtual high five. I love what you've just said then. Holly Ransom, we are now at that time of the interview that we call Performance Uncovered. I'm going to give you 13 questions. You hit me with the first response Ooh. that comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> high pressure stuff. That's okay. number one. What is your favorite movie? I don't like movies. So I really have no answer to that. Two. What song do you know all of the lyrics to? Oh, so many. I will pick my song my wife and I did our first dance to, Love You For A Long Time, which I also proposed to her with, so Maggie Rogers. 
we'll put the tracking on that as we speak. Number three, what food can't you get enough of? Oh, this is so boring, but I like if you cut me what, open. This interview I'm like 90% with, with us oats. or this question? <laughs> no, no, no. That that like my answer is so boring. It's so like vanilla and uh, mundane. But like I freaking love oats, so it would be some form of like porridge or muesli or something like that. As boring as that is, don't trash oats. I love oats with blueberries and a drizzle of honey. <laughs> I love oats. So simple. Next question, number four. That was what, my breakfast this morning. Beautiful. Four. What book has had the biggest impact on your life? How will your How will you measure your life by Clayton Christensen? I haven't read that. Ripper. Question five: What is your most meaningful possession? Mm. It's funny. I'm not really a possession person, so I'm actually trying to think of something that probably my wedding ring. I would say, I, yeah. Question six: What does your weekly fitness routine look like? Uh, running five days a week and to lots of Pilates. Question seven, what is your favorite failure? Personal or like at large? Because I was just telling a story of an at large one earlier today. Go personal. It's funny. It's an instinctual response and it may not be a right one, but it would be because I I think it's probably a mischaracterization of failure. So I'll explain. Getting diagnosed with depression and the journey of recovery from that, like the whole notion and, and what I represent as a failure of, Please don't please hear me when I say it's not that mental health is a failure by any stretch. What for me, the manifestation of that was a failure of how I was living, thinking, structuring my life. But where the reason I say it was my best failure is because of how I completely restructured and reset my mindset, the way that I work, who's in my life, all of it. And so that would be my favorite failure if I if I frame it that way. If that makes sense. Makes total sense. Question eight, what do you do to recharge? I'm curious on this one because you're an energizer bunny. You're on, you're an extrovert, you're loud. <laughs> what do you do to downregulate? I'm loud to my introverted wife's delight. Uh, he run, like exercise for me is 100%. Like I need it mentally every day to kind of just be, be sane. So exercise of some level would be my biggest one probably. And then spending time with people who I find energizing, like who can talk either vulnerably or big picture or not not kind of small talk conversations or superficial stuff, but people who buzz there. That and sport, like watching Port Win being involved in the club there. I love sport. So watching AFL in particular and Port in particular is another energizer for me. What keeps you up at night? Lots. I mean, macro questions, meta questions around, you know, the future of the planet. Let's not lie about you know the genuine concern around whether it's the war in ukraine climate change all manner of things there's some existential questions there and i think personally how can i be doing more like how can i have more impact uh that that challenge around you know continuing to evolve what you do to make a better contribution that that would be my personal one question 11 your biggest productivity tip managing energy not time like being conscious of your high energy points in the day and making sure you're getting the return on energy they deserve, making sure the stuff that energizes you is in the diary first, not last. That sort of stuff is a game changer. I wish there were more people like you, Holly Ransom. Question 12, who has been your most influential mentor? Grandma, Dorothy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's super special. My grandmother is a force in the best of ways, unbelievably selfless. She, for me, has just been... You know, she's the person who encouraged me and believed in me before I knew there was anything to believe in. She's the person I think has taught me more about 
how to be in this world than anyone else, like or who I want to be in this world in terms of the way that she shows up in her life for other people, the humility, the, the grace that grandma is someone that I have always admired that no matter who you are, you will leave feeling bigger for the fact you've spent time with my grandmother. And I think in a world that so often belittles us and diminishes us and crushes us and pushes us or tells us all the reasons we're not right or whatever, there are a few greater gifts you can give another human being than to have them leave an interaction with you feeling like that, that the world is lucky that you exist, that you're doing what you're doing, that you should be so proud or what you do is so interesting. Like grandma is just, and, and it's not put on that is so deeply authentic. It speaks to that point earlier and you can, you can find that in everyone. Grandma does that every day with the person at the coffee shop, with her neighbor, with the, um, the gardener who helps her out now because she's long, long gone from being able to do a garden at 93, you know, you name it. And it's, it's joyous to watch. I love seeing you light up on that. I'm sure there's some people listening to this going, I never had a Dorothy. Mm. What would you say to someone who didn't have beautiful Dorothy as a grandmother, who hasn't had the role modeling, who mm-hmm. hasn't had the conditioning and maybe stuck on that track that life is shit, life is hard, bad stuff happens to me? How would you get them to reframe? One of the things... I think about often is how do you be the leader you never had? Because not all of us have had the leader that we wish for um, or the leader that you wish you had, if you want to phrase it another way. And so the the challenge I would offer back is who can you be the Dorothy for? And I think there's something around embracing like how do I show up in that way? Because the, the law of attraction says if we show up that, that way for other people, we will get more of that back from other people. And so there's this reciprocity. I mean, that's literally why we're called humankind, that, that reciprocity and connection. So I would say, you know, as hard as it is, and I'm sad to hear uh, always when people haven't had those role models, I do think we can challenge ourselves sometimes that, you know, a role model doesn't necessarily wear a superhero cape. You know, there are moments you can probably take from people in your life, a sports coach you had at under 10 Little League, the teacher you had in year nine who was the first one to encourage you to to read or to write or to follow that passion or whatever it might be. You will have moments of Dorothy scattered through your life, I'm convinced. And so one, it's starting to tell ourselves a different story. How can we knit that together and say, actually, I have had moments of that and I'm grateful to the people who did play little roles in making me who I am today and giving me a head start or helping encourage. And then I think it's this piece around, you know, can we be bigger than what happened to us? So I might not have had the start I want, but I can pay forward what I would have hoped for myself and certainly what I would hope for others. And and that would be for me how I would how I would think about how do you be more Dorothy? That's what I try and do. Thirteenth, what is your definition of high performance? Ah, it's the I think it would be the ability to sustain success, however you define success. That would be my definition of high performance because I think everyone's got their own goalposts and the challenge of life is working out how do you not do it once but how do you string it together. So high performance for me would be people who can sustain success. And you are doing that in a big way. I've loved our time today. It has gone so fast. And I know you've got, to, know it flew. You've got to go to your next Thank you for such thoughtful thing. questions. Well, I had two, two final things. One is, can you please tell Dorothy 
she should be very proud of her young granddaughter for passing on the gift. Mm-hmm. I got goosebumps when you said that. And I can see the, the love and warmth coming from you now. Can you tell her that? Just to say that you did an I interview will. with this guy with a shiny unfortunately head. very unwell at the moment. Okay. So I hope that will make her feel a little bit better. She should be very proud of you. You've, you've taken the gift, and it is a gift that Dorothy gave you, and it was a beautiful answer you gave for someone who hasn't had a Dorothy, but she should be very proud that she's passed on that gift and you're passing that on to millions of people with the work you do around the world. That's very kind. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been such a pleasure. And the final one, you've got to run. You might want to email me. What can I do in future interviews to improve upon around questioning, around context? Let me take it on notice. And vice versa, as a guest, I welcome the feedback too. How could I have been better on that side? I don't get to do this side of the dance all that often, so it's something I know I definitely have a lot of room to improve on. So I really enjoyed it. And truly, like, you know, it's, it, and you know this all too well, we get asked to do interviews pretty regularly and it, it, it really means a lot and it makes a difference when people have really thoughtfully put, like, done the work to think about what they, what they care about asking. So it was very clear this wasn't a set of, like, generic questions that no and I, I really appreciate it because a lot of people don't do that it feels as you know like right very formulaic how how conversation can go so I appreciate that oh I'll, I'll, I'll think when I listen to it I can't think of any uh, and I will hold you to let's hold each other to the improv it actually makes me feel a little bit anxious now oh yeah and a little it's bit excited kind of that, at the same time you know that roller coaster feeling in the in the bowels of your belly when you've you've signed up you're not yet on the roller coaster yet but you're like oh i'm about to do this it's like yep cool we're in <laughs> jumping out of the parachute hey you've got to run thank you i've loved today i've got so much out thank of it so much. so much mastery in what you do and the passion shines through so make sure you tell dorothy i will thank you so andrew another episode of the performance intelligence podcast done and dusted this time with Holly Ransom, and I just want to make the first comment that you are a massive, massive fanboy. Wizard, guilty as charged. I, I do, and I said this, I have an intellectual crush on Holly and what she does. The mastery of craft, the way that she has worked on her craft as a speaker, facilitating, asking questions, and then she builds it all in together, and she's just so fast, so quick to, to pull that into her story into her narrative but where I'm a real fanboy is I look at that list of people she's interviewed OMG Wiz Barack and Michelle Obama Sir Richard Branson Billie Jean King Condoleezza Rice Adam Grant the list goes on and she's so humble about it it's Mm. like oh yeah I've interviewed Adam Grant three times now and it wasn't gloating it was yeah I'm getting the feedback And and I love that feedback loop as well where she openly asked me during the podcast and after she said can you let me know areas where I can improve so yeah I'm a fan boy love the mastery of craft but I also really appreciate Holly saying hey I'm learning and Adam Grant told her that there's a few things she needs to do and she got it right the third or fourth time so it just shows that constant evolution to have mastery you don't just get there and go woohoo I'm here it's constant keep evolving keep learning keep growing it's great to have people like Holly in the podcast and I've seen her in action so we spent five weeks working together on a project so I saw her show up each week little nuances so yeah she just she practices everything she preaches sometimes with I find on the speaking circuit with thought leaders which is a word that sometimes I think is overused 
speakers, coaches, you have people who talk about content, domain expertise, and then I see them do something different. But there's a congruence there with Holly. Yeah, and I mean, I think she threw you a little bit when she complimented your lovely voice for radio, uh, which I guess is better than telling you you got a face for radio. But. <laughs> I'll have to listen back. Did, did I get deeper after that? Did I try to? I think you did. I think you started. Hello, yeah, John Laws. Hello, yeah. world. No, it was good. And I mean, I learned a few things as well. I, that constant learning. Yeah, like you were saying, it's, it's, it's mastery, but it's always going and learning something new. I mean, if I had interviewed both the Obamas that'd be that'd be me done I'd get that tattooed on me I'd that'd be the top of my game I wouldn't go anywhere from there I think but yeah she just keeps going and, and learning more things and it's really good to see I liked the framing as well the courage zone versus panic zone I've heard different variations of that but not not those exact words that when you're stepping into a new activity when you're stepping into a new role it could be even a new relationship have the courage to move forward rather than getting startled and being stuck in fear or stuck in panic. So I really like that frame. You know what I love though most about that whole interview was Dorothy. Oh, and yeah. you could just see the shift when we spoke about that with Holly. Yeah. And she paused and she reflected. Now, I actually got a text from her about half an hour after that. Oh, really? I'll pull it up. So great to chat earlier. Just called Dorothy on my drive to my next meeting. She says you're too kind and a smiley face. That's great. I mean, Dorothy, yeah, just from the sounds of it, is an absolutely lovely person. I'd love to meet her one day. And it's great that she's given you that feedback as well, like almost straight away after the podcast. So that's, that's, that's really nice of her. And this feedback loop from Adam Grant, I've heard that from a number mm. of people. And I think for someone like him who eight, maybe even nine or ten years now, gets voted as best lecturer but he's constantly looking at where can I improve yeah. I know when I started speaking coaching writing doing a bit of media I'd be mortified at the people that gave me feedback that they didn't like me what I said my message my clothing my hair or lack thereof mm. I'm learning to embrace that more now and, and not like you get excited about negative feedback but more <laughs> constructive feedback yeah. And I'm going to start building that in. Well, we, we do it here. Like we sit down at the end of a podcast, like we do with a lot of our webinars and, and keynotes, what worked, what didn't, what can we do better next time? But it's a whole different level asking the people you're working with, you're interviewing, yeah. hey, how can I do better? So I'm going to start building that in to my process here as well. Yeah, and that's one of the things I've been learning as well, uh, working with you, is that getting that feedback is good. I mean, it, it may hurt your feelings in the short term but in the long term you're going to think about it and you're going to go yeah actually that's a good point and you'll, you'll learn from it I think I said you was when you first started here that I've been in sport for 20 to 25 years it is just the process mm. and I hope it doesn't come across as brutal because I look at you've learned so much you've evolved so much but I think if we don't have that well, you've got to have a base level and you know, not think the other person's an asshole. But if you don't have that environment, that, that psychological safe environment where you can give feedback and move forward, I think that's where a lot of people, a lot of relationships, a lot of business partnerships, they get stagnant. Yeah, I think some people need to realise there's a bit of a difference between you know feedback from someone who knows you rather than someone just yelling at you on the street. And if it's feedback that's done in the right intent to grow, to develop, to nurture, to move forward, mm. again, I know elite sport is different, but I love the immediacy of it because you get it, it's in the moment, process it, move forward, learn, rather than like this whole annual review. What a crock. 
Carol. You could do something in February and you don't get the feedback until December. Yeah, I think that'd be a fun experiment, though. Let's not say anything to each other for a whole year. We'll bank it up and then we'll just go at it. <laughs> one day, here's one day. We might even triple our podcast downloads. Who knows? But I actually like the process that we use. 